Hello, and welcome to the 94th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Friday, the 8th of February 2019, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. Today, we have part two of our anti-politics interview with Dr. Tad Tietze. Tad is currently writing a book on the topic for Verso Books, provisionally titled The Great Derangement. You can find his writing on his blog, leftflank.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Tad. This week, I have the new Patreons, Philip Corbett, Andrew Hurley, Stephen CM, and Erica Whelan to thank. You too can become a patron for $5 a month, which works out at about $1 an episode. When I reach 50 patrons, I'm going to do an extra Patreon-only podcast every month, and fortnightly if I reach 100. So if you'd like some of that, you too can become part of the gangbang by clicking on that there Patreon button. All patrons get the episodes early, they get to vote on and take part in the reading groups, and for those who have cash to burn and donate at the higher tiers, get extra benefits like a personally handcrafted commie badge, choice of topic slash guest, and even a one-on-one call with yours truly. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel. I try my best to respond to each and every one of them. Also, make sure to like, subscribe and share, and you can join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, to the interview. What about somebody like Trump and kind of normalising racist language, tipping his hat to the right currently without a social base? What happens in the time of a crisis when social bases can grow very rapidly? You know, we, we, we know capital is prone to crises. Are we underestimating the future impact, the dynamic nature of society to suddenly one party goes from 3% to 25%? In Europe, it's very, very common. Are we underestimating the kind of nonlinear aspect of Trump's behavior? Well, I, th- I think on the question of his, of his language, I think uh, his language is harsh. He doesn't really use many classically racist terms. Like he doesn't use the N-word. He doesn't use those things that you normally associate with the old hard right and far right. He talks in very, very blunt terms. He also talks in very blunt terms about thing about racial groups he's positive about. So he has this kind of weird thing where he'll talk about, you know, Mexicans are sending us, they're not they're sending us their best people, they're sending us rapists and murderers and whatever. And on the other hand, he says, I love Mexicans, they're the best people. Like he's just got this kind of crude way of talking about things, which I, I think the far right was attracted to it and have, I think by and large the far right is pretty disappointed with Trump because his actual policies and what he actually does is actually not very far right. Like even his immigration policies are still probably at this stage to the left of the immigration policies of the Australian Labor Party. But, you know, Australia's a funny place. So when you look at it that way, it's kind of harsh language. Can it itself grow a social base? I don't think so. I think forces have to move in society. And for fascism to really grow, there would actually have to be a mass revival, I think, of working class organisation at the base of society. Then fascism becomes relevant. It doesn't just become a set of, you know, ossified ideologies and an electoral strategy. I think it's telling how much the fascists, like, you know, Le Pen, Marine Le Pen is the inheritor of a party that was a fascist party and still has lots of people who self-identify as fascists in it. Yet to get anywhere electorally, she's really had to move dramatically away from fascism. And certainly from what I've been able to tell from my reading of the literature on the National Front, 
it has a very weak social base. It has a significant electoral organisation, but a very weak social base compared with what you would expect, you know, from a fascist party that was scoring that much of the vote. So I, I, I think these things don't just spring out of nowhere. And I, I think the fear of it, though, is this kind of inverted view that somehow the bad member of the political class will unleash forces in, in civil society that are very evil. And when you think about it, that's kind of the argument against Bernie Sanders as well, isn't it? It's the argument against a Leninist, you know, becoming popular in politics. It's this constant argument from the, within the political class that you're unleashing something dark from below. And I think the argument is particularly uh, important for members of the political class and the political elite now, because their own institutions, their own social bases have broken down. They sense a crisis and they try to understand that crisis not through, oh, well, maybe there's a problem with politics, but through, well, there must be something causing this problem. And so you get this constant blaming of various social groups for the breakdown of politics. And therefore, in Germany now, because I'm living in Berlin now, there's this, uh, and I think the panic is not just in Germany about the rise of the AfD, the Alternative for Deutschland party, which is like a, you know, a party that has significant far-right membership in it, and which has grown to about 13% of the supporting the polls, now the Greens have overtaken it and in fact overtaken the Social Democrats as the two main parties of German post-war capitalism break down, the, the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats having uh, support as low as at any time since World War II. Uh, in fact, the Social Democrats, apart from the Nazi period, are now having support as low as at any time since the late 1800s. Like it's an incredible breakdown of the political system. And so everyone has to talk about AfD and the rise of the far right, because that's a way of, you know, pinning the breakdown of the old parties on some kind of evil force coming from society. It's harder to explain the rise of the Greens on this basis, like, and it's harder to explain the political breakdown on the basis of the rise of the Greens, because they don't fit that narrative, do they? Like, are they fascist Greens? Are they Nazi Greens? They're clearly not. There's a breakdown in the happening of the political system, and it's harder to talk about the Greens because they don't fit this neat narrative that there's the rise of right-wing populism everywhere, you know, which is based on these horrible older white working class voters who are causing this problem, who are, you know, white nationalists and so on. So I think there's a lot of like projection of the crisis of the political class onto this fear that something terrible will happen in society. The economic crisis happened in 2008. The circumstances that occurred to many people in Western countries, in rich countries, after that were pretty horrible. Um, there were horrible recessions in a number of countries. And yet, strangely, in terms of organisation on the ground, the far right hasn't really risen up. And you've got to ask, well, how much more is it going to take? How much longer are we going to keep making this prediction that you know, some bad politicians at the top are going to unleash something or enable something? That's the other big word, isn't it? Enable. Tad, are you, you've yet to talk about anything about the rise of the lizards. The lizards. You don't know who David Icke is. He used to be on BBC and as a sports presenter and he left and he essentially probably had some kind of nervous breakdown. He, he was like the biggest kind of Alex Jones type in Europe, I'd say. And he has right. the idea that all these people are shape-shifting lizards. It's not a bad metaphor for the political class, but like all those kind of InfoWars type people and conspiracy theorists, I mean, I think probably conspiracy theorizing is on the rise, partly because like people who are see the world in a political way 
notice that the old certainties of politics are broken down and they're trying to find some understanding through someone. And politics itself is kind of a conspiracy. If, if Marx is right that politics works on its own logic in antagonism with the logic of people's social interests in civil society, then in a sense, politics is a self-sustaining conspiracy at, you know, in, at a, in a very rough way. I'm not saying it's a conspiracy conspiracy, but it, it is kind of, it is a self-interested sort of cabal who are working together to, to maintain their position and their continuity. And so when that collapses, for example, with a Brexit or the election of a Trump, people start to look, I think more people start to look to conspiracy theories to explain it. So really, um, I mean, having lived in New York for a little bit of time over the last um, 12 months, um, one of the things you notice amongst American liberals is the amount of conspiracy theorizing that is just like mainstream now. You know, the Russia collusion conspiracy probably being the most prime one. You know, people believing that if you connect all these different dots, you'll find the truth behind how Trump could have won because he couldn't have possibly won through the normal playing out of politics. And I guess, I guess it, now we're seeing the left-wing versions of the David Ikes and the Alex Joneses. Their names are like Rachel Maddow and so on. Well, I think it's, it's, it, it runs much wider than that. And it's actually not a, it's not a thing so much of the far left, though I think the far left has opportunistically or because it has no clearer perspective fallen in behind it. I think it's important to see that something significant has happened in that someone completely outside the American politi Washington political class actually became president. And this is actually, even though Trump is just really the culmination of a process, he didn't make this all happen himself. He took advantage of the situation. Now it's become apparent to everyone. Uh, all these things have become apparent in a way that can't be hidden as well as before. And I think it does lead people to not be able to accept that it's happened. It does create cognitive dissonance, as the cognitive psychologists would tell us, that people's view of what society is like and what, what Americans should be like does not fit what's happened. And they just can't, they can't pass it. And it's tremendously emotionally distressing for them. Um, certainly, I've, I've never lost as many friends or had as many people lose it at me as during this kind of Brexit Trump period, where people just become so angry that I can't see that point of view that there is a conspiracy that Mueller is going to bring it out that you know this was you know skullduggery that caused this and so on you know it's it's, it's quite striking uh, uh, how how angry people become uh, and I think probably sections of the right in America experienced that after Obama won in 2008 there was just such an affront to their worldview but this is much more pervasive and really runs into large sections of the political establishment that are in on the center and center right um, there are Republicans and centrists and mainstream liberals who are, who are like this, which is why the vast majority of the American media um, is so incredibly hostile to Trump. Uh, even, even Fox News is mixed on Trump. Um, if you want balance in your coverage of Trump, you probably watch Fox News, which is a crazy thing to say, given the history of Fox News. So there is this kind of derangement that has spread across the political class. Clinton said a week before, in a major interview with the New York Times magazine, she said a week before the election, she said, I'm the only thing that stands between you and the apocalypse. She actually said that. It was the headline of the article. It was quite remarkable. And then the problem was the predictions were the apocalypse couldn't happen and Trump was going to lose, but the predictions were wrong. And so the apocalypse happened, except it kind of hasn't happened. American society chugs along. Joblessness is at record lows. The women's unemployment rate is at a record low. Unemployment is going down. Economic circumstances have improved. I'm not claiming Trump has caused any of this, but American society is not apocalyptic. 
and yet politically everyone feels it's the apocalypse. It's interesting. And that's that contradiction again between civil society and politics. It comes out again and again and political thinking says, well, if the apocalypse is happening at the political level, it must be happening in society. Let's go looking for the deranged white working class voter, the deplorable or the de desperate white working class voter who must be blamed for this state of affairs. Let's look at their social situation. They must be in an apocalyptic social situation or they must have apocalyptic ideas and they must be spreading through society. We can't explain this in any other way. So a fair bit of my book is about that kind of thing as well. So do you see movement in the radical left? Do you see the beginnings of a return to radical left politics? Look, I'm not across every single country you know, in the rich capitalist countries, but there's actually surprisingly little of it. Uh, I think the main reason is that apart from Spain um, in that sort of two to three year period, there hasn't been a really sustained period of social resistance. Even in Greece, like people talked about the recurrent general strikes in Greece, but they were mainly public sector workers, which is a minority of the workforce. Um, they were mainly still pretty bureaucratic. I'm not saying there was no workers' self-activity or no self-organisation, but actually that social base has been weak. And therefore, the revival of radical leftism is difficult on a social basis. And therefore, what happens is the radical left tries to, and I think this is a longer-term strategy of the radical left in the absence of a revival of social struggle, has been to try to orient on the breakdown of the wider left and try to get things out of it. So you see radical groups orienting on Corbynism, on Sanders phenomenon and so on, but actually those things don't represent substantial social shifts. So in the United States, you know, people quoted these statistics about, you know, look how many, what percentage of millennials has a favourable view of socialism. This shows you why Bernie Sanders has arisen. The problem is these polls have been run for years showing kind of similar levels of approval for socialism and much higher levels of approval for capitalism and, and entrepreneurship and big business. So, so people point to individual social statistics, but there's really not much evidence of a general either left-wing or, or right-wing radicalization in American society. There's some evidence that, I mean, I think it's good evidence, Americans have become more socially liberal on the questions of women's equality, on the questions of racial equality, and on, uh, they've become, in recent years, including all through the Trump era, more favourable towards immigration, but that's not a stronger trend. And they've, of course, become much more favourable towards homosexuality and gay marriage, like dramatically, uh, dramatically large increases in favourability there. So there's some evidence Americans are becoming more socially liberal and perhaps economically slightly more conservative in the last 30 years. But it's, you know, it's, a small, it's a small trend. They've mainly stayed in the middle. There hasn't been much change. So there's no basis for a radic mass radical left. There is there's no social basis for it. How's about in the last years, I started my podcast about five or six years ago, but in the last, I think, two to three years, there's been a massive increase in the number of left radical media online. Do you see that as something yes. that is the kind of the embryonic stage of something? No. Quite the problem not. with it, I think, is, is it, starts with, it starts with politics. It doesn't actually start with society. And it, it can't help but, like, if you're going to put on a left podcast, like if I was doing a podcast or I have a blog, I'm writing a book, I'm not claiming I'm coming from a social base. I'm just doing, I'm intervening in around a series of political questions about society. And I think that's interesting that people are doing that. At the same time, there's a whole bunch of right-wing podcasts that have risen up as well. And there are a whole bunch of, in fact, online stuff has just risen up. And, you know, online stuff allows people who are pretty amateurish 
to produce their own material. Like uh, I'm a complete amateur and I did a lot of blog posts over a number of years about various political issues. And they were, you know, some of them were quite widely read, but I don't think that really represents anything more than a fracturing of the media landscape. And it's a good fracturing in that more people are involved. I think that's, that's excellent, but it's not a sign of a shift in society in, in that other sense. I mean, whether that, that technology and that media could be used in the future by movements that arise, I think there's good evidence from the Indignados movement that there was some very creative use of, of social media outlets and so on to help organise that movement. But those people moved in reality, not just online. One thing I haven't heard you talking about, I was wondering if you're going to put it into your book, is the five-star movement initially. Oh, yeah. So I guess uh, Italian anti-politics only plays a small role in the book. I've not paid as much attention to it as some other places. I am across it enough to know that certainly the five-star movement was based on an explicitly anti-political appeal. It's got technocratic elements to it, you know, the stuff about online voting. And, you know, it's interesting, this government... Apart from the governments that were actually led by imposed EU technocrats, in the post-war period in Italy, the current government, which is a very anti-politics, anti-EU government, has more unelected technocrats in the cabinet than any other government, apart from those ones that were actually run by technocrats, like the the Monti government uh, a while ago. So it's really interesting. There's this fusion between technocracy and anti-politics in this case. So I think they're, they're very interesting in that sense. But in terms of having a deep social base, I don't think there's much evidence they've built a social base. I think they've cleverly been able to position themselves against the old political class in this particular period and get a significant electoral base and a machine that, that has been able to maintain an independence from the old political class. What's more interesting now is now that they're in government with the Lega, which is you know, a more right-wing, clearly right-wing organisation that has played with populist anti-politics, the Lega has been much more effective in gaining public support and played this played this kind of coalition government scenario much better. And now in most of the polls, the Lega have gone from being well behind to five star to work well ahead of them. I think the other thing that's similar between now and the 1800s is politics is extremely volatile. There will, there will be extremely rapid shifts at the top, even though society itself won't necessarily shift very much at all. Like That's really important because if you start to read off the state of society from the crisis in politics, you're going to think, wow, society's a total mess. Things are just moving at 100 miles an hour all the time. And then you come down to Italian society or German society or American society and it's like, oh, things are still moving at a glacial pace. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting you're talking about there hasn't been shifts, but I read a statistic, you can probably tell me the right numbers, but something like, say, under 25-year-olds in America, 80% consider themselves more socialist than capitalist. That would seem quite a shift. Yeah. Um, so the data that I've seen, which I think um, that crazy Trotskyist website, the WSWS, World Socialist website, they actually dug into that data and tried to make the most of it, but actually the shifts have been much smaller. So I think for the first time amongst Democrat voting or Democrat-identifying millennials, there is now a majority who prefer socialism undefined to capitalism. So when you crunch down the numbers, the figures are much less impressive. On the other hand, there is this phenomenon, which was the Sanders phenomenon. He clearly tapped into disgruntlement with the direction of the Democratic Party in the, you know, in the background of the financial crisis and, and so on, and the Great Recession. And by declaring himself a socialist, you can make the word socialism more popular 
but does that mean greater support for the, so the project of the mass of the working class overthrowing capitalism in the state? Absolutely, I don't think it does. But it does point to yeah. a shift, I think. Like, I, I think if you're young, if you're 24 and under, they don't watch television and they don't get their news from mainstream television. A lot of them get their news from Twitter and such things. Now, that will probably end up splitting them towards Peterson and, you know, maybe some left-wing Jimmy Dore or something. <laughs> but Jimmy Dore is a lot more close to, say, even like a radical social democrat than he is to Hillary Clinton. You know, yes. I, I think that there is a shift underway. And I think that from the youth from to both extremes, now people change when they get older and that, I understand that. But I think there is a, a burgeoning of the radical left, however small it might be. It's hard for, you know, when you run a, a, a podcast and like you, you're writing a book in it and maybe somebody is who's thinking about this stuff a lot. It's hard to see the wood for the trees from it. But from just just from my looking at social media of people that I don't know their politics before the Corbyn thing, I, I, I'm a really big fan of you're, you're into disco. I'm into boxing. Right. And I have a special Twitter sure. account that I use for trolling boxes <laughs> and stuff. I found that I was very shocked. I expected Corbyn to get absolutely routed in that election. I was very shocked by the kind of a, a lot of positive stuff about kind of radical social stuff that was coming from people who I don't know their politics at all. I don't do anything political on it. Yeah, I, look, I, th I think, um, I mean, the Corbyn thing, because I'm into dance music, like I follow people who are into dance music and there was this incredible number of quite soft left dance music people, really quite soft, who were completely enthused by Corbyn, particularly at the last election. And I think, I mean, there's a, there's a website called Vox in the United States, which is run really by Clintonites. And in Vox, they're constantly putting out ideas that sound like radical left ideas. But I, I guess two things are going on. One is that the, the fracturing of the, of the old political formations mean that Radical leftists like Corbyn, because he always has been in the radical end of the Labour Party, who existed inside the Labour Party and could exist inside that milieu for year after year and have loyal supporters and people who like them. All kinds of strains of opinion could exist in these larger parties, centre-left and centre-right parties. As those parties' authority over their social bases has collapsed, as those social bases have hollowed out, you get a fragmentation. So like in Germany, Die Linke rises up taking part of you know, the, the SPD vote. Actually, all that has really meant, by and large, is a shift of a certain amount of supporters from one political umbrella to another without a real radicalisation in their views occurring. So I think that's one thing that's happened. So I think that's one thing we see. The second thing we see is that more people on social media, so more people say stuff, and people are more like like really conservative Democrats in the United States say all kinds of radical left stuff against Trump. All these like, conservative Democrats use the term white supremacy and throw it around like a big radical statement. So it can actually get people can actually seem much more radical because they're using a language that's much more radical without there really being a significant change in, in social opinions, you know, over the, over the longer term. And uh, I, I guess the other thing is that when there are key figures like Corbyn or Sanders who use a particular type of rhetoric and inspire people whose, whose actual social views are pretty ordinary and haven't shifted very much, people can start speaking in that language to express their own views of the world, but without there being a real... Uh, so that's why it's important to look at the longer-term studies of social opinion, 
and pretty much every rich industrial country across Western Europe, Australia, the United States, there's actually been remarkably little shift in people's self-identified ideological positioning in, in their policy positions on a wide range of issues and so on. There's, there's been very little shift. And if we, if we start looking at the little trees that we can see in front of us, then we miss, we miss the woods. And suddenly Trump appears to be the product of a rising far right in the United States. And people make that argument. No, I, I agree with you. You have to look at the data. But I, I feel I'm just wondering, is there something brewing that's below the data when it comes to the far left with, with young people? That's kind of my feel. Well, I, th I think there's something brewing in society. I think the antagonism between politics and society is becoming more pronounced and expressing itself in more obvious ways without people necessarily becoming more socially radical. But that antagonism, I think, is, is much more obvious. But the radical left, by and large, with very few exceptions, actually doesn't want to see that antagonism. It wants to be the radical left pole within a political sphere. That's how it sees it. It, it can't understand reality except in that way, that there are these forces from far right to far left arrayed, and it, it occupies this space within, within the activity of politics. It accepts the separation of politics from society. So I think things are brewing in society. I think by and large, the radical left is looking somewhere else. There are some exceptions. I think Podemos was an example of people who are at least notionally radical leftists, kind of thinking, hey, something else is going on here. At least let's try to orient on it, however imperfectly. So it's an interesting, I mean, it's still a political project, but it's an interesting example where something did happen in society. There was a real social movement. However, whatever its problems and weaknesses, there was a real mass social movement and it forced sections of the radical left to try to understand how to relate to that. I think that's significant. But by and large, everywhere else in the world, people thought that the 15M Indignados movement was, you know, a case of, um, you know, an infantile disorder because people didn't like politics. But I think it's significant. I do too as well. Like uh, my friend Derek Varn, he is always like, he, he slags off everything that ever comes up and I'm always doing the opposite. And I always see the, the good in these things that come up. Things even like yeah. even like Five Star and Corbyn or Bernie, I, I see the good in it. But you have to be critical of what's happening. Yes. At the same time. Uh, I guess the, the only thing is to go back to your first or your second question, which is how did I get to this? One of the reasons I got to this was that Australia had an anti-political, we had our own Trump, I guess. We had a Labour Prime Minister called Kevin Rudd who explicitly ran as if he was entirely dismissive and hostile to the structures of the hollowed-out Labour Party and was the most popular politician since regular polling began. He was the most popular Prime Minister that Australia's had for a, for a period of over two years before his popularity crashed for, for reasons to do with the nature of his project. But he was a technocrat and an anti-politician. And uh, what was really interesting was he was a guy who didn't, he actually presented a pretty centrist, unimpressive Labour Party program, not really left at all. And yet he created this enthusiasm amongst young people, amongst others, and, and had a popularity that was unheard of for any prime minister before or the, it seems like, 600 prime ministers we've had since he was overthrown. So, so you have this kind of crazy situation where, but no one wants to talk about his popularity. No one wants to talk about how he was the outlier for this long period of Australian history, which is racked by political crisis and upheaval. He was the outlier for a period of three years, this incredibly popular politician. 
And I guess that that is the first example that got me thinking about anti-politics because the Piping Shrikes blog really, um, I think, was very, very sharp on that and really made me start thinking about that and start thinking that the old left-right formulas didn't really fit in the way that most Marxists thought that they, they would. Todd, how, how did they get rid of them? I kind of vaguely remember they got rid of him. Why did they get rid of such a popular politician? Well, he was he was absolutely hated inside the party and inside the trade unions, because in Australia, the trade unions still control the party through a system of factions, which are allegedly ideologically aligned. But the ideology is pretty ossified. It has very little meaning because the social base in the unions between left and right unions no longer makes any sense. So these factional leaders hated him because he really his very presidential style of leadership, he took over control over, over who was in his cabinet, in his ministry. He basically ran roughshod over their desires and maintained his popularity. But the limit was he had no social base of his own and relied on sort of the, the acquiescence of a series of factional players inside the party who, well, as long as he was popular, they would kind of tolerate him, though they really wanted to get rid of him anyway. And then the one thing he used to really batter the political class, the whole political class in Australia, was the issue of climate change, which, of course, up, up to the Copenhagen summit in 2009 was a major international agenda. And when that Copenhagen summit really ended in failure, when Obama and the Chinese signed a pretty crap agreement, Rudd really had nothing to come back to in Australia. And then he was convinced by his party, uh, by the people you know, in his party, that he should drop this whole climate change thing. There's no way he's going to be able to get it through. And once he did what they said and did that, his popularity, I mean, he lost like a million and a half supporters overnight by dropping his climate change policy, which was his big kind of, this is more important than politics, this stands above politics. And so he became more seen as a, a regular politician. But then his popularity started to increase again. And so the factional leaders moved as quickly as they could to get rid of him before he became popular again. And some of them admitted that the, the worst thing would have been to allow him to stay in power longer and regain his popularity because then they couldn't have gotten rid of him. And so they installed his deputy, Julia Gillard, as the leader. And she was essentially a creature of the factions and of the trade union bureaucracy. And I mean, that's the role she played. And she was the most unpopular Labour prime minister that we've had probably since the Great Depression. So um, a friend of mine who like came from the same Marx sort of background that I do, he's like, he follows this stuff. So he's, um, he's pretty funny telling us, showing us all the latest memes. And I mean, one of the reasons I don't take the alt-right very seriously is he's like really into what's going on in the right-wing internet. And it's so obvious that these people have no serious social base and that really what it is is like people who once they might have said this to each other in the privacy of, you know, their, their Dungeons and Dragons group, now they're saying it on forums and it's a bit more accessible, but there hasn't really been a substantial, you know, radicalization of anyone. You know, the only thing that might happen is that because it's these ideas are aired now, it's in the crisis when the thing will move. And that's when it might gain a social base. But like the type of social, the type of crisis that would need for it to gain a social base, people forget what the like 1910s and 20s were like in Europe. Every country Absolutely. had a revolution or a massive a massive war with millions killed it's like so far yeah. away from our social base people are fretting over brexit you know brexit's just like yes. you know, your 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 economy might go down two percent this year you know you're not killing five hundred thousand people and having a revolution yeah. absolutely right the thing about brexit is um more like 
what it the fact that Brexit could be allowed to happen, what it says about the political class and its lack of control over Britain. Though I think that they've largely now engineered a deal that's even worse than if they'd stayed in the EU, you know, that's more subordinate to the EU than if they'd stayed in it. So in a sense, the political class has, is going to deliver Brexit but squash it at the same time. I mean, those yeah. Tory rebels, they're useless bunch of sad sacks. They are, but I, I would not be surprised if the Tory rebels, on some sense, are both being played by the Tory centrists and being used, you know, as a negotiating tactic yeah, so. with Europe. And even knowingly, you know, because they might get a career out yeah. of it. More than likely, it'll be some kind of fudge where it'll be an extension of the customs union so they can get their trade deal yep. through and then it'll all just be a kind of a slightly shittery economy <laughs> and that's that's what it'll happen i mean what one of the important things though i think is that the, the british political class won't accept northern ireland sort of drifting off like they're going to protect find a way to protect that i think the eu probably pushed them a bit hard on that because that you know like just like the scotland referendum that threatens the union and that's a big deal to the authority of the political class whatever else they might think about the EU. Uh, apparently, like, it's 80% under 25 or something are in favour of independence. But, like, what's the worst thing that could happen from Brexit? For me, it was, like, that they'd make an absolute balls in negotiations and it would be a hard Brexit. And what would happen then is something like Scotland would say, we're going to hold a second referendum and then there'd be a constitutional crisis. Yep. That's the kind of worst that'll happen out of Brexit. Or maybe a slight yeah. uptick in, it, in Republican violence in Northern Ireland. But it's, but it's unlikely, unlikely, I'd say. One thing, though, he didn't talk about is, is climate change. I think that could be amazingly radicalising. But I think in, not in the way that people think. I think people thought it was going to be politically radicalising and it wasn't. But climate change leads to the ultimate question, which is that climate change represents the fact that our society is under no one's control, really, like it is an anarchic society and like social capitalist social relations are not really the alienated social relations so they're under no one's control there is no collective rational way to do to address this issue and so i think in that sense it might prove to be radicalizing in that in order to solve climate change people are going to have to take control of society whereas the idea that it was politically radicalizing that it would lead to governments states that would then impose radical solutions on society i think that's that's kind of died now I think I'll disagree with you. I think that'll be really radical in 10 years' time. These IPCC reports, that has got people really depressed and fired up. I think young people looking at that are likely to go ballistic in 10, 15 years' time. That is the crisis that will actually, that could cause the social base to really rise. Well, no, I think, I think in terms socially, but then, but then whether it would lead to a political outcome or a social outcome is the question for me. And I, I think the political solutions are exhausted. I don't think people think there's a political solution, which does, in that sense, make it positive. Uh, I think I, I agree with you. It raises the very question of the nature of society directly. I, I think there's lots of political solutions. You know, that's the thing, though. I think there are political solutions. Like, there's no reason why America couldn't, in 15 years, be largely, like, cut their emissions in half by just a, a World War II style green new deal thing i don't think that's unrealistic i used to agree with you on that i was a member of the australian greens and i i certainly i certainly thought that kind of thing but actually i think the 
given that politics, people are so alienated from politics, if the political class came and said, let's do a wartime style mobilization, they would find there would be no social base to do it on. And they could only do it by trying to mobilize the armed force of the state against society. On what basis do, would they have to force that through? Because you'll have a lot of people losing their shit. And then being so- told that they need to they need to live tight in their belts, that their wages need to be suppressed more in the United States. Well, look, the the latest stuff coming out is saying that there's a 90, 93% chance there'll be a four degree rise by 2100. That's the latest yep. science, not the IPCC report, but the latest science, you know, because the IPCC reports are usually about five years behind what the latest stuff is saying. And when that stuff gets into the general public, like that's cataclysmic, you know, that could release methane yeah, I think and then we're all dead. I think it'll demoralize people. Just like all the other warnings in the past have led to nothing. But the, the idea that because the ones in the past didn't work doesn't mean that these will work. I think that's a false idea. You know, look, the, the way I would say it is like, I, I know you, you come from all these stuff and you be really put your heart and soul into working on these things and nothing changes. But that doesn't mean that, that nothing can change, if you know what I mean. But that's not, but that's not what I'm saying. I, I think what I'm saying is that for society to move, the social contradiction has to affect people's direct social interests and they want to actually fight collectively for their own direct social interests. The problem with looking at one of these reports is that they're almost always framed in terms of a cataclysm that's coming a long way into the future. And therefore, it's not going to be about what are you going to do now in your direct social interests. However, when these things start to happen as a result of climate change, people's direct social interests will be affected by them. And then there will be something for people to collectively mobilise around. Otherwise, it is really actually saying, well, there's the possibility our social interests will be affected in the future. What we need is the state to impose something on us. And that's, that's the problem. It then re- recapitulates the same problem, which is this alien political sphere. I mean, it's hard enough to get people to agree to changes in healthcare in the United States when it more clearly directly affects their social interests than it is when you think about it, how hard it is to politically move things on healthcare in the United States. The difference between healthcare and and this is that say you look at loads of like twenty year olds and like they're saying oh healthcare healthcare and they're all like they're grand they're going out in the piss you know dancing to techno yeah. they don't give a fuck really about healthcare but what they do know is that we could be fried and I think that the impact of those are different the impact of trying to get healthcare versus saving the planet that's just a different impact here's something I'll predict now in the next ten to fifteen years. I would be very surprised if we don't start seeing like, you know, you know, all these like anarchist assassinations from the 1880s or whatever. Ones like that against people involved in like top of ExxonMobil and stuff like this. I'd be very surprised if stuff like that doesn't start happening. But we are currently seeing that kind of thing happening on the left. Antifa are going to Tucker Carlson's place and harassing his family. They're burning down buildings at Berkeley to stop Milo Yiannopoulos speak. Actually, this stuff is already happening, this kind of socially detached activism. Yeah, yes, whatever. It's an expression of something, though. In like fact, the, what, the socially what, detached anarchist murders were an expression of something that also happened to be organized through like the communists at the same time and the anarchists as well. It was an expression of frustration about, about the lack of social and political change whilst disconnected from actual social struggle. 
yes, if you're but, connected to actual social struggle, you wouldn't need to go assassinate anyone. But it was also a part of that mass organization too. It was a part of the whole. Those anarchists shooting random politicians in Europe and America, they came out of a social base too, even if they were atomized. Yeah, but I think but I think it's their atomization which meant that they would they ended up being detached, which is why, you know, Lenin could speak to to why the populists are, you know, terrorists or whatever. It was understandable why they did what they did, but the strategy was a complete disaster. Yes, I, I agree with you about disaster, a, a, a strategy. But I, I just think that if we, like, if we look saying that there is no social base now. But there could be. Like, that, yeah, that's what I'm trying to say is that these things, the dynamics move quickly. Like in these complex systems, you see it's like yeah. a, a grain of sand and it just reconfigures its whole shape and things happen. I feel like that we have to be wary of being empiricist versus thinking like systemically or dialectically. Massive shifts quickly. You won't see guess, them in the data. You, 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 you won't see that, that big pile of sand. You won't be able to observe it and say that it's structurally going to fall apart. It's just too complex for you to be able to see it. Well, that, that's a different thing. Like systems can fall apart without anything much moving in society before that. Clearly, economic crises can happen without there being social struggle or social resistance to them. That's really what happened after 2008 in places like the United States. But I think there can actually be a revival of social struggle. I guess part of this analysis, the anti-politics analysis, is that when that struggle does revive, are you going to be the radical leftist who says, yes, our own social power as the mass collective acting in our own social interests is what we need to do to transform society? Or are you going to be the radical leftist who says, it's great you're having this struggle, now you've got to come in behind our political project that we're going to play out? That, for me, is the key question. I think most of the radical left wants to be the leaders of political games, you know, and would love to have a mass social base behind that, right, which they don't have, as opposed to seeing that, that rising in society as a force for itself to transform society, which I think was Marx's point. You actually need society itself to transform itself. So these questions for me are not about me saying whether I'm positive or negative about things, but... I think, yes, the reality of climate change could lead to mass social struggle, but I don't want to be that Marxist who says, that's great, you're struggling now, line up behind my political project and we'll solve it once we get in control of the state. And uh, I guess that's my differentiation from the, from the Naomi Kleins of the world who don't really believe that society can do that and are looking for a statist solution or an elite solution, even though it seems like a radical one. So thanks very much, Tad, for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. It was great. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters by Sunra and his orchestra. And you're now listening to Night of the Purple Moon, again by the good man Sunra and his orchestra. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode from Alpha to Omega. <laughs>